0: You You are listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast.
1: Maybe over my fly fishing career I may have saved a million insects' lives because they've, you know, gone into the sample jar and flown off and hatched and had careers and families and all that stuff. But if they're actively wiggling, you know that fish just ate that food source.
0: What's the biggest mistake you think fly fishers make when they hit... Body of water for the first time, like what would be some kind of low-hanging
1: fruit? Go too fast, like they we're all there. We oh, we're on the water. We're going, and just gear is thrown into the lake, and they motor a thousand miles an hour off, and they're not quite a thousand, but you know they're going places, and they they're missing things. So you you need to spend ten or fifteen minutes because after you've done your homework, literally work at home, then the next place to start doing some figuring out is right on the shore. So start, look, you know, take a walk up and down the, the shoreline, uh, look, you know, what thing, you know, there's certain insects, dragonflies, damselflies that crawl out of the water to emerge. So you're looking on the we- any emergent vegetation or, or shoreline bushes and trees, any signs of a hatch. You're gonna look along the shoreline, turn over rocks and logs, see what's living under them and swimming around. If there's been some recent wind, you, you can have foam lines that are built up. They're white. They offer great contrast, and they trap things in them. Uh, um, so you, you're going to do all that. Take an aquarium net with you. Um, you know, scoop around and, and try and see what, what potentially could be on there. Look on the
2: water, what shucks have been blown in. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source
0: for all things fly fishing the fly crate offers a monthly fly club we select patterns every month for your home waters with membership you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area along with the fly crates guide magazine the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door some sweet stickers discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now theflycrate.com
2: here's your host mark hopley
0: Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Really happy you chose to join us wherever you happen to be listening. And we are going to do what we always do on the show, and that is find, seek out passionate people in the fly fishing space. And we've got one of the best, a legend in my mind, and so grateful he's taken the time. We've got Phil Rowley, return guest to the program. Uh, Phil, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Anytime,
1: Mark. It's always great to, to talk to you.
0: So, Phil, Phil, obviously, I'm just going to run through. Uh, I, I, your resume is so big. I always try to kind of, uh, these are the Coles notes. And for those of you that are a little younger, that's just kind of a, a rapid, quick fire. Um, fly fishing is Phil's passion. He's a teacher, guide, author, fly tire, video producer, YouTuber, Online brand learning, uh, online learning has some pretty cool stuff. We'll talk about that actually. Brand ambassador, uh, we we just had Phil on not so long ago talking about his latest book, the Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout Fishing, and there's so many nuggets in that, and we're gonna dig into this a little bit. But first off, Phil, I want to find out how you've been, what you've been up to, because I know I know you're uh, kind of excited to get back on on the fly fishing show circuit again.
1: Yeah, I just returned from this past weekend. I was at the International Fly Fly Tying Symposium uh, in Parsippany, New Jersey, which is uh, a okay. stone's throw—well, not more than a stone's throw—but close to New York City, as, as far as markers go. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, it was good. I also managed to get down there a little bit a week or so early and uh, headed down with a friend of mine, Paul Heston, North Carolina, uh, Harkers Island, and. Uh, Got to fish with uh, Sarah from Outer Banks Fly Fishing and Chasing False Albies and Redfish on the fly, something I'd never done before. I saw I'm some argu- I saw some I, of
0: those pics, man. That looked like a lot of fun.
1: It is. It was, um, you know, the ocean's just a big lake, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: with a lot meaner, faster fish in it. No, it was uh, a yeah. beautiful experience. Um, got day one, we got false albacore, you know, a little... Look like little tuna. Um, well, they are the smallest member of the tuna family. Chasing bait balls, very exciting. Hmm. And uh, the next day I got a, my first two ever redfish on the fly, which was a surprise, and they were rather large. So I've been probably jaded for the rest of my life on, on redfish, but uh, hey, for beautiful those, place.
0: For those of us who feel stuck on a lot of freshwater, what's it like getting the redfish on the fly? What are the runs like?
1: um well the first the first one i managed to land like they pull line really good like anything in the salt Mm. the first one i got was about 25 pounds so that was bigger than i ever expected and then um the second one i got was 10 pounds bigger and we actually i had to get sarah sarah gardner our guide to uh i had to politely ask her to back the boat up because uh It took my fly line and almost 200 yards of backing. I was seeing the spool of my, you know, the arbor of my reel for the first time in a long time. It was a little scary and exciting all at once. So, Good stuff.
0: What's it like getting back on, you know, back to a little bit of normal, you know, normal things here, getting back to the world that you know and love and have become so, so busy with, you know, getting people together in a room and talking fishing?
1: Well, it's, you know, at first we were, I guess you could say you're a little nervous with, you know, all that's been going on. And it's just a, what was second nature to me as far as travel and, and everything seemed to have changed. or You couldn't remember packing things. It's just seemed all new again. And of course, you've got to be vac- double vaccinated, at least going to travel. You've got to have COVID tests going into the States and got to arrange a test coming home and that's a little it's a new experience and, and one you got to figure out for the first time um, but the the show itself was really it, it, we all said to a to a tea, all of us that were there was how nice it was to be back you know face to face and talking again and you didn't realize it again you that song right you don't know what you've got till it's gone um, it was just really good to get back together and talk and and be in a <clears throat> Uh, situation with so many like-minded and some unbelievable fly tires
0: that show so that's specifically obviously tying Uh, yes who so what draws a picture of that show so is it basically a lot of you know uh, brand ambassadors for different vice companies and whatnot materials what what's uh, what's that scene Uh, like
1: combination of all that it's a smaller intimate show than um the fly fishing shows i attend and that's the sort of the brand the fly fishing show and this is a um a um an extension of that that's you know been a tradition for many years up until last year um and uh god i can't quote the numbers of people in there but it's small it's intimate it's focused it's mostly everybody who's there has a, you know who is a participant or a speaker or whatever we want to call ourselves has their own little t- tying table that's their be- sort of their base. Mm-hmm. And then um, they sit and they tie, and there's a range of tires tying everything from the smallest, tiniest nymphs and dries to the largest streamers, salt water, fresh water, warm water, um, just a great collection of tires. Um, some really great names in the industry. Um, Dave Whitlock was there. Nice. Um, Landon Meyer, Mayer, um Tim uh, Camisa, Tim Flagler, who runs uh, Tightline Productions, uh, a very popular YouTube channel, as is Tim's. Um, Who else was there? God, I'm going to forget. I'm going to get in trouble here. Jake Willock, a really great uh, tire of bass flies. It really ties some beautiful streamers. Tao, who's a very prolific tire. Oh, man. That guy's
0: tying scares me, Phil.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, no. who else was there? God, I've just gone totally blank. I was sitting with a gentleman named Harry beside me from the Netherlands. I think we were the only two imports mm-hmm. that were in there. Um, Mark Petijan was supposed to be there, but unfortunately his flight got canceled right while he was at the airport, um, waiting to travel over from Europe, and he just couldn't make it because by the time they rescheduled his flight, he would have arrived as everybody was leaving. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and people doing uh, um, seminars, um as well Uh, myself i got to do a a seminar and do some tying demonstrations there's workshops as well um just it was really neat there's there are um some companies and manufacturers in there but a lot of just individual tires just showing off their stuff and it's it's Mm. really a neat, neat neat atmosphere to be involved in
0: yeah i'm just i'm just so so stoked that that's some of that stuff starting up again uh, especially as we head into winter, you know like uh, especially for us north north of the uh, the border uh, winter time is 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 time in time, right
1: yeah it's desolate I don't know about where you are but we are cold and we have yeah. our first touch of snow it's supposed to go above zero uh, tomorrow but uh, we were down minus fifteen centigrade today can't even remember what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's cold
0: I put the tarp it's, on the boat yes yeah, uh, the the day before yesterday. Are-
1: And the boats are all away. I did that a couple of weeks ago. And Mm. yeah, it's definitely tying season. And for me, show season, because it all starts up again in January. I'll be in Boise. And Mm -hmm. then I go to Marlboro, which is Boston. And then stick around there and head to Edison, New Jersey, which is one of the largest fly fishing shows, arguably the largest fly fishing show in the world, just a hopping little place. And then I'll be in Denver uh, Pleasanton, California, which is the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and uh, Salt Lake City as well. So far,
0: wow! Sounds like you got a, a busy, uh, busy yeah. few months coming up, and you're naming the shows. Those are, I haven't been. I really want to go to the California show for some reason. The Pleasantville. I haven't. I haven't is it Pleasantville? Is that right? Yeah. Ple-
1: Pleasanton. Yeah. It's Pleasanton. Just, uh, sorry. It's, it's about f- forty-five minutes or so, thirty-five minutes um, uh, south of Oakland. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you can fly into San Francisco (SFO) or Oakland and then hop an Uber and get down there. And there's something nice for you and I to be in February and 70 degree weather.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And same, well, not, I guess it's not same time zone for you, but close enough.
1: Yeah. No, it's only an hour away. No, 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 no jet lag there.
0: Yeah. So listen, I, I, uh, what, one thing I was hoping we could do a little bit of today, because I've got a lot of people, um, reach out and, uh, I had a few, more than one person has said, can you, walk us through strategies for when you hit a lake. So so let's say, let's say you're hitting a lake for the first time, Mm -hmm. never been there before, you know, can you walk us through in your mind as someone that's been doing this a long time and, and, and had a lot of success, what's the thought process? when you're hitting a new water, can you kind of paint us a picture and, and, you know, from ground zero?
1: Yeah. And it happens to me a lot. Uh, two things that come to mind, you know, with some of the television shows, I get the good fortune to film. I'm often just sort of uh, um, not always have a guide at my disposal or a lodge to help me out. It's sort of, uh, there's some good lakes here. Let's go figure them out, right? So you're under a bit of pressure to obviously do the the show proud and the the people that support the show. And then I I go back to the 2007 Canadian Fly Fishing Championships. Um, I was fortunate enough to... Be invited to be on a team with brian chan and kathy Ruddick and a few others that you, you probably know um and uh, todd oshi and norm ruprecht and and i never got to um my my job at the time ironically in the fishing industry i couldn't get the time off to, to participate in the two days prior two prior practice days so i uh i got into you know back home did some laundry hopped on another flight thankfully it was in my home province of alberta and arrived at the show at the um, um, competition uh, right when the opening ceremonies and the conservation symposium was on. And then the next day, I was up to bat and fishing, so I had no time to practice. I had some notes um, on uh, napkins from my teammates who had been fortunate <laughs> enough to practice. And my session was actually on a small lake. It was a um a little landlocked lake off a bigger lake and it was all fishing from shore and nobody was allowed to pre-fish that because it was so small you know broken into sections or beats as they call it Hmm. and i'm up to bat right away and in those competition environments you know if you blank um it's really bad it's hard to make up those lost points and i was fortunate enough not to blank and you know our team was fortunate enough to win the gold medal and um I, I, I owe a lot to my success in being able to contribute to the team, sort of to what you talked about, about, you know, standing on a shore of a lake, you've never fished before, scratching your head and going, how the heck am I going to figure all this out and have a good time on the water?
0: Mm. So when, when you when you approach that, so in that, in that instance, obviously comp- competitive angling is maybe a little different, but hmm. we're all competitive in our own ways, whether it's with oh, yeah. your fishing buddy or otherwise. Um, or yourself, right? Um, yeah,
1: nobody wants to be that person that didn't catch a fish that day. No, that's <laughs> it never... It might cost that... you a dinner or some beverages. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you have no clue what that's like, though, do you? Come on, Phil.
1: Yeah, I come on all the time, do you get skunked? And I'm saying, oh, yeah, my, you know, those trout or whatever other fish I'm chasing, they don't really care much about any resumes or what you've, what you've managed to accomplish. Unfortunately, they just... They, in fact, I'd probably have. if they knew, they'd probably have great fun in... in uh, and uh, putting you down.
0: <laughs> I'm thinking that lake must have been during turnover. <laughs> 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 but well,
1: I had some. I'll tell you, we were on a, a film shoot a couple of years ago, and um, you know, five day shoot fishing in a number of lakes, and uh, we didn't catch fish till the last day. And I was uh, the flea. It was tough to control the flea response. I'll tell you, <laughs>
0: mm, because you're
1: like, I can't believe this is happening because everything looks so good, but. Finally on the 5th uh, day everything came together and we were able to pull it all off.
0: Is there anything you could say words of advice mentally when you're having a tough day? You're out there and maybe the fish aren't cooperating, maybe there's not a lot of insects pulling off. What do you do mentally? Do you just kind of like have a checklist from A to B that you go through or what what do you do in your mind when you're, you know, if you are struggling a little bit?
1: Well, it's a lot of it's positive attitude, right? Uh, a late friend of mine, Gord Honey, used to say, "You've got to have PFA, positive fishing attitude. You've got to believe in what you're doing and rely on your experiences, and don't be too proud to take advice from anywhere." I've learned some things for some raw beginners or seen people mm. do things that um, I would never think of doing, but it worked. I was uh, uh, one example. I was doing a school catching up on some schools due to the pandemic. I couldn't get through at Corbett Lake Lodge last this past September. And that lake is, uh, you're probably obviously familiar with it, Mark. It's not too far away from it. <laughs> uh, and beautiful clear yeah. water. It's a private fishery. Um, mm-hmm. Those fish, you know, they're stocked at about two pounds. So those fish are surface-orientated. There's there's caddis in there. There's a healthy, healthy mayfly population, coronamids, damsels. And, of course, there's terrestrials as well. And when you're two pounds, you, you know, your first part of your life is spent... Uh, eating on pellets that kind of rain in from above. And then one day you're thrown into this whole new environment and have to learn to adjust to that. Um, But I still, I still think they keep their um, surface tendencies. So um, to summarize this, I had a student who was fishing a parachute Adams and he was with me in the boat one day doing it, just casting it out over, you know, that big hole right adjacent to the lodge launch there. And those fish are in 25 to 30 feet of water. And he's just, letting that Adam sit and every once in a while gives it a strip and he was catching fish after fish. And I, you know, at that moment, I'm thinking that's not a strategy I would have thought of, Mm. um, to do, but he'd had such good luck earlier in the week fishing, on the adjacent shoals and, and on the drop-offs that um, he said, why not? So I'm like, well, next time I go to Corbett, the dry fly searching and prospecting with a dry fly is going to be on the list because it's just fun to watch fish come up to the surface and eat. So
0: You know what's funny? I got out there with John Wilkinson in, in the fall, which for me is really hard to get out in, in September, just being in the wine industry. We're usually in the weeds, but that's exactly what someone was doing there. There was a gal, mm-hmm. she was from in the States somewhere. Uh, Um, but anyway, she was slaying them on, on a dry May and and it was like, you know, it was late in the year. It was like, we're looking for bigger food items, thinking the fish are going to be down deep, but they were, again, they'd come in, you know, those shoals on that lake are so beautiful and, and, and lots of places to hide, but I was blown away, but I never would have thought of fishing a dry, not, not then. There's nothing pulling well, off, you know?
1: No, well, yeah. Early in, in the, I was there two straight weeks, and, and the first week was a little, you know, just coming out of summer, so still a little warmer. And the, the fish we did, you know, used carefully, got our throat pump and got our samples did have lots of terrestrials in them beetles, ants, mm. um, you know, things, you know, blowing off the surrounding trees and whatnot. And then we had some back swimmer action. So yeah. these fish were up on the surface. And we actually fished lock style at the north end and just drifted over the shoals, and we were fishing into almost two feet of water and taking fish on dries throughout the entire drift. It was really a fun fun way to explore a a shoal.
0: That's awesome. You know, it's funny. I had your buddy Brian Chan on a while back, and I asked him to describe his dream lake, like basically make one up, and I swear to God it was Corbett. (laughs) When he was describing it the two deep holes and the shallow moral. I'm just like, oh, man, that sounds like
1: Corbett. Clear, you can see your quarry.
0: Yeah. That's a, uh, it's a gem, but, um, yeah. So, well, okay. So that gives us a bit of an inclination to kind of where your mind goes. So if you're struggling a little bit, maybe think outside the box, um,
1: Move, move a lot.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: As well. Like, you know, sometimes we get, you know, we're where we're sitting isn't working, but we're not feeling good about moving either. And, you know, I always joke with people, if we're going to move, I said, let's move. We can at least stare at a different bunch of trees for a while. Um, yeah. What, and that's how, one of the- how long,
0: Phil? Like, how long? So you're sitting there. Let's let's say you're anchored on a still. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, do you give it 15, 20 minutes if it's not happening? Are you on the move? I or?
1: I would say about 15 to 30 minutes. And, and some of that's, you know, one of the guidelines you can use is how, how, how fast you're moving the fly. If you're fishing slowly under indicators or, you know, creepy crawling something around, you know, that flies in the water a long time, a longer time. than if you're moving something faster, so if if that's not working and I'm not seeing any signs of life, you know, usually we're looking for moving fish, a swirl, something to inspire us that there's somebody in the neighborhood. um, So if if that's the case, I'm probably going to move a little faster, you know, 15 minutes, maybe if, um, Mm. You know, I'm, I'm stripping leeches and dragonfly nymphs around at a higher pace. Um, I will, uh, you know, perhaps maybe stick it out a little longer simply because that fly is moving through the water a little faster and may not have had a chance to be intercepted. Um, but, you know, it's usually when that little gnawing voice in your head or your gut says, you know, I'm not having fun anymore and stuff like yeah. that. Because usually when you pick the spot right, the fish are there to feed. They don't, I don't believe they, you know, if they're in a the mood to eat and they see if something presented you know, reasonably well or properly, um, they're going to respond to it right away. They just don't let it go by 15 times, and if that thing comes by on 16, I'm going to take it out. Um, they usually respond or they don't, right? So um, I, and I, when you move, you don't want to move exponentially. You know, I would, maybe it's uh, two cast lengths down, right, or you're always keeping you know, O'Brien may have mentioned it in his. We have something called the two fish rule, so if we see a fish move, we obviously pay attention to where we saw it, and if it if it or another fish moves in that same vicinity twice and we're not catching anything, we're up and over there to have a look because okay. quite often there's one or two around. They they tend to shoal up, meaning they'll they won't be in a tight school, but the particularly rainbows like to swim in you know loose associations, we'll call it. <laughs> um, so usually if there's one or two, there's there could be half a dozen or more in there. So always moving out. And I like to start shallow and then work, you know, and, and work. I have structures. I like to, I love fishing drop-offs. I love fishing points um, because you got deep water. You know, you got basically three areas to fish. If you're on a drop-off, you've got the the shallow side, you the shoal side you can cast onto. You've got the transition from the shoal to deep water, the edge you can work. And then you've got that deep water immediately adjacent. And Corbett. You know, uh, probably not all your viewers know about it, but it's got some classic drop-offs that you can do just that.
0: You made me laugh. You're, you're, one of your other good buddies, Ryan Ermit, said, uh, what did he say? Three fish on the finder and 10 shucks, and I'm putting an anchor down,
1: basically. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you're always looking. That's the thing is you're, that's the fun of fly fishing, because you're just a, a sponge. You are taking information in, whether it's bird activity, shucks, wind direction, Moving fish, things on the sounder, there's always something, you know, clues you're looking for, and it's, I think the quicker you accept them for, sometimes, I think as humans we get preconceived notions. You know, there's lots of discussion in the drive up with, if you're with others, and and you kind of sometimes can get pigeonholed into something that's not the best tactic when you get there after a little investigation and you you get stuck in your ways and you won't change right? what would,
0: what would be a real unexpected hatch for you so in other words you know you're heading out to the lake you're kind of you're kind of doing well maybe you don't do it but i know i do it you're like okay it's cranny season it's damsel yep. season but you get there and it's like the boatmen are popping or the beetles are falling out of the trees yep. have you seen any weird hatches like that that just kind of made your head shake
1: uh, beetles were one. I remember one day on a lake where I am in Alberta, watching these fish come up to the surface and take something. Could not figure it out. And you know, you you tend to always default to aquatic insects when you see that kind of. Maybe they're taking something just underneath the surface. You know, it was in pretty shallow water, so it could even be a fish chasing a scud up near the surface. Um, it could be a mayfly spinner. They lie flush. They're t- they're difficult to detect unless you're right over them almost. Anyway, so couldn't figure it out. Eventually uh, managed to coax some crazy fish to the fly and you know th- that poor fish is definitely going to get a throat pump cuz you're just so curious and and it was full of little beetles. And beetles often trickle in on the lake because they're not like an ant fall where there's you know the you know, carpenter ants or others, you know they it's time it's time for all you guys to gals to get out and big swarm takes place or you got those boatmen or backswimmer falls. so There's enough of them on the water. It's it's tough to miss them sometimes. But these beetles are just getting blown out of the trees and they're just trickling onto the surface. But over time they accumulate and then they become something for the fish to. Oh, I'll have some of those. Um, hmm. Hatch, yeah, hatchwise, wise. And that's not really a hatch. So that's more of a fall. Like, a, um, but you know, you, there's. Um, you know, caddis would be one you don't always run into anymore. They just don't. Uh, my wife and I were down on Fishing Monster Lake in Wyoming and landed right smack dab into a traveler's sedge hatch that I didn't expect in late July. Right. Because that's used, you know, that's in our neck of the woods. That's usually getting late in the hatch cycle for those insects. Yeah, you know, of course. Fair. but it, it was a pleasant surprise. I'll tell you. <laughs> can, watch I, those can, big
0: can I tell you one weird one I had last year? Sure. It, it was it was November. OK. And I know it. Lakes are starting to lock up where you're at, but um, November, crazy, crazy windy, like white cap windy. But what yeah. was happening, Phil, was these uh, northern conifer seed bugs were getting blown out of the Ponderosas. And I didn't, yeah. I didn't know what the hell they were taking. I'm like, what? They looked like grasshoppers from afar. And I'm like, what? They can't, can't be grasshoppers. But they were like the, people call them stink bugs, but I actually looked them up and it was a northern conifer seed bug. Yeah. Never seen anything like it. And they were full of them. They were going nuts yeah. for them.
1: Yeah. I I have had one time in Manitoba, a bad tent caterpillar year. And we saw a big brown trout in the shallows chasing and slurping things down. And often when they're near, they're hunting minnows. Right? So we're going at them with that. Somebody finally got one. And it actually, you didn't get a chance to puke. It puked them up. Tent caterpillars. Wow. And there's a lot so, of
0: tent caterpillars in one yeah. of those tents.
1: Yeah, because, and huh. so everybody's tying tent caterpillars, and the next year we got all these tent caterpillar patterns. Of course, that never happened again, but if it ever does, we're armed for it. We got lots. Well,
0: oh, that's I what think. I love about tying, right? And that's yeah. that's kind of the leg up. And then you pull from that vault, right? It's like, oh, I remember yeah. 10 years ago, tent. I don't, I can guarantee you I do not have a tent caterpillar pattern. Nope. Hmm.
1: <laughs> I have maybe two or three just because what's that doing in there? Because only the parents, it's like, uh, adult damsels i love it when they start getting on them but it doesn't happen very often they usually eat the nymphs or conditions have to be right for fish to feel comfortable to come in and and uh, feed on them or there's got to be enough of that food source to be around but boy when they get on them that's a that is a lot of fun because it's a good aggressive eat
0: yeah so how important is for you so let's get back to this you know we're having a tough day um you start maybe you start picking up some fish. Let's talk about that throat sample and how important that sample is.
1: Well, it's to me, it's it's incredibly important It's because um, it provides three things for you. It provides, obviously, what they're feeding on, um, where they're feeding in the water column, and if they're actively feeding. So if we go back to the first one, what is just simply you, you, you put it in the vial or in your margarine container or whatever container you're using to hold the sample, um, and you see you know, scuds, damsels, chronomids, different sizes, different colors. Okay, I know what they are. Um, The depth comes into play when you, if you take your knowledge of entomology, you don't have to have a a PhD in it, but it's always good to have a good working knowledge of of where things live and and what stages they are and and things like that. So if you get in your sample uh, zooplankton, for example, zooplankton is a um, microscopic food source that can drive us to fit sometimes but they feed on phytoplankton and phytoplankton's light sensitive so typically uh, during the daylight hours your zooplankton are going to be deeper um, so if you get a fish with zooplankton in it that's usually a sign they're in deeper water right so that that gives you hmm. some clues as to where you want to go and what you want to do even though you might have caught that fish in 10 feet of water adjacent to deep water um, it's come onto that shoal to have a little you know, maybe it's bored of eating zooplankton and wants something better, but it's come on for a bit of a cruise and you, you've, you've caught it. But it, it's one of the thing indicators are used. And of course, the third part is actively feeding, because if you throw pump those out and they're wiggling like mad and, you know, in the case of some insects, I, I jokingly say I've maybe over my fly fishing career, I may have saved a million insects lives because they've you know, gone into the sample jar and flown off and hatched and had careers and families and all that stuff. But if they're actively wiggling, you know, that fish just ate that food source. And chances are, if you can match, you know, that food source and present it properly, both in how you move it and the depth you pre- present it, you should catch fish. I want right? to so ask food.
0: you something, Phil. Is, is that something you're talking about, the zooplankton and, uh, you know, some smaller food sources? A lot of times on the Finder, I will see... Okay, I was on a lake last week, uh, actually about a week and a half ago, um, kind of last trip of the season. We're in, say, we're in deep water. We're in like 40 yep. to 60 feet of water, and 30 foot was the mark And the whole lake. Yep. and But everywhere those fish were, there was like, you know how you see on your finder, it's like a kind of a haze of something. Like, yep. And it wasn't anywhere else. They were right in that zone. Is that is that what that is?
1: It can be. Sometimes you're, and uh, when I was, again, flipping back to Corbett, when we were there, in, in the, the the lake still hadn't really had a chance to turn, so it was still stratified. It was still reasonably warm. When you went over the deep water, you would see this at 30 feet down, because Corbett's pretty clear, this sort of, it looked like a blizzard from 30 feet down to the bottom.
0: Exactly, and, yeah.
1: And what that is is actually differing water temperature because water doesn't mix when it's different temperatures or densities. So what's happening is your sounder is part of your pulse is getting through and part of it's being reflected. And that's what creates that sort of distinct line and, you know, haze below it. So some of your sounder beam is going right down to the bottom. Some of it's being bounced off the the differing water temperature and reflected back up, and that's how it appears on the sounder. It's pretty neat. Interesting. Yeah. And, of course, zooplankton are often... <clears throat> excuse me, congregated around there um, because it's that, that difference in temperature is a physical barrier. They're just too small to penetrate. So it, it keeps stuck there. When
0: people talk about, you know, the lunatic zone, what, what is that? What is the lunatic zone? Or is that a big question?
1: See if I get my uh, terminology right. I put all that in the book. I, the limnetic zone, <laughs> God, cause there's, there's the littoral zone and then limnetic zone. And that's, um, they're both affected by sunlight, but the littoral zone, or we often call it shoal, is any portion of the lake where the sunlight hits the bottom. Whereas the limnetic zone oh, okay. is is that upper part of open water that the sunlight still influences, right? So it can penetrate, it can warm it, um, and right at the extent of that is where your thermocline forms. Right at the um, edge, you know, the limit of the sun's energy and light penetration. So that zone is still very, very um, productive. I love the way
0: you verbalize that, though. That actually helped me a lot because I I used to fish with this guy, and he was always telling me, you got to be in the lunatic zone. I'm like, what the hell is the lunatic zone? <laughs> I don't know.
1: Yeah. Anyway, and who talks like that? <laughs>
0: uh, it must have been after a few rum and cokes or something. Um, so... Okay, so here we are, we're we're seeing these fish, uh, we're kind of finding the zone, we're finding the depth. So let's talk about yeah. the depth a little bit, because you, you, you said something that I, I, I really, really resonated with, and that's like when you're anchored in a drop or in a, you know, you're fishing, you can fish shallow, you can fish the drop, you can fish deep what would be your next kind of thing is, is, is trying to find out the exact depth of those fish and, and what they're feeding on or where, where does your thought process go yeah, from there?
1: If you suspect, you know, I always, everybody likes to work the shallows and, and as fly fishers, you know, that 20 feet or less, we're, in, we're right. That's our sweet spot because first of all, that's sunlight penetration hits the bottom, stimulates weed growth through photosynthesis food for that's the, that's provides habitat for food. And, and that's the, as I often say it's the Walmart Costco Safeway or the underwater world. That's where fish go to feed. And also from a presentation perspective, we have so many presentation options at our disposal. We can you know fish an intermediate line, we can fish something under an indicator. We could fish a floating line and a long leader. Um, we can do lots of you can fish a buoyant fly on a fast sinking line like a, like a spun and clip spun and clipped deer hair dragon. those kind of flies. When you get out into the deeper water, your presentation's options narrow because you now you're dealing with the depth, you know, so um, that's where we generally do best. But when I start working out in deep water, then you've got to try exploring, you know, the work your way down. Um, indicators can work there, but there's a bit of a drawback because you're, you know, once you tune the depth in with an indicator, you can fish it from you know, when the fly first settles right back to when you want to pick it up to cast again, your fly is always in that zone. But when you're trying to figure out where that zone might be, that's where you're sometimes I use sinking lines to explore that by just using that sink rate to, um, to my advantage, you know, knowing that if a line sinks at um, three inches per second, um, we call it the rule of 12. So if you decide to divide the sink rate of your line into 12, which corresponds to 12 inches in a foot, I'll tell you how long that line takes to sink a foot, and therefore you mu- multiply that number by the foot you, you know, the level you want to get your line down to. So that type three sinks at um, three inches per second, goes into 12,4, it's going to take four seconds to go a foot. I want to go down 10 feet, I'm going to have to let my line go down approximately 40 seconds because if you put heavily weighted patterns on there, Mm-hmm. That's gonna affect it, water density, but it's at least you're being methodical. You're not just pitching it out and Phil, looking around that, and that... scratching your ears and then starting to return retrieve and then you hook a fish. You have no that's a tough system to duplicate.
0: I can't tell you um, how many competitive fly fishers have told me that and how many amateur fly fishers I think don't do that. Because I know yeah. I you know what I mean? Like actually think, count down your line. Like I, yeah. I do you think do you think a lot of us Guys and gals that are out there on weekend warriors are doing that. I, I, maybe they are, but I, I don't think so. And
1: I, I like to do it for two reasons. Obviously, the first reason is what I just described, but it also keeps you in. I always joke when you hook a fish, the human brain, and probably particularly in males, has that auto erase feature that just, well, you hook the fish, you don't need to know any of the reasons why, and, and erases it for you, right? <laughs> and at least. <laughs> And I go back to when I was in school, I, you know, I had to work hard to learn things at times, particularly in the sciences, uh, physics and math and and those kind of things. So I had to do all the homework, do the notes. And it's that repetition that would burn itself into my brain. So by counting down, um, you know, I've I've just done it five times in a row. Hopefully it's starting to sink in on the sixth time I get a fish. Um, You know, I've kind of embedded that self so I can duplicate it again.
0: No, that's so that's so smart, yeah. and especially if you're using, uh, and I know you can't do this in competition fishing, but if you're using electronics, you know those fish are stacked yeah. at thirty feet. Figure out how to get there, and if you're if you're if you're trolling, or if you don't really know if you're fly fishing, right? You don't really know.
1: No, it's uh, yeah. I find trolling, and some people are very. And it's, I'm not trying to say it's a bad thing. I just I like to be I like to move the fly. I like yeah. to be involved, and yeah. I like to. Um, you know, and the other reason about trolling too, is the boat precedes the fly as opposed like, if I'm going to cover water, I'm going to lock style. I'm going to put out the drogue and I'm going to drift and I'm going to cast and retrieve and cover water that way. Right. That if I, cause that's one great, you know, if you've tried all your favorite structure, you've gone shallow, you've gone deep, you're sort of at your wits end. Um, that's one of the times I'm going to try lock style. And that's not to say lock style is the end, you know, the last thing you try, um, but it's the best method to cover water. There's times when, you know, I mentioned about fishing those dry flies on, the, on that shoal, drifting over and just covering the entire shoal um, just exposes your fly to more fish. So you just, one of the things to be successful is to be versatile, not to get sort of, in, to me, ingrained in one presentation technique over any other. Right? Learn all you can because, A, you, l- you know all those different things, and B, a lot of times you can cross pollinate between them and create some new wacky method that works at that moment, you know. <laughs> how, uh, how
0: important in your mind is it uh you know, we're talking about we're getting to a lake that maybe we may or may not know, but the craft selection. So, you know, whether you're fishing out of a pontoon or John boat, uh, you know, your marlin. How important is that craft selection on, on the body of water that you're hitting?
1: Yeah, it's You know, some of it, it's what we choose to fish out of is a function of our budget or our transportation to get there. Um, I do definitely like fishing out of boats or a pontoon boat just for being up off the water a little bit, a better perspective to see things, particularly with strike indicators. I think the more of an angle you can look down on the indicator, the better you can see things. Um, but you know, there's times that paddling around in a float tube and being low to the water and, and is intimate and, and you can really sneak in on fish cause you, you're so low to the water. I remember, you know, when I used to float tube a lot more, you'd have fish almost come right up to you to see what you were all about. <laughs> right. What, um, what
0: are you fishing? And, and by all means promote what you're out of. I, I, am just curious, what are you fishing out of these days on, on the stuff
1: Um, majority of the time I'm fishing out of my SP14, that my Marlin I have I, I affectionately call Trout Spots because it's been wrapped with a rainbow trout wrap. Um, it's distinctive. People definitely know when I'm on the water, and if you do see me coming over and say hi, you'll be the um, only guy the, with a drogue. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe in British Columbia, but other places, uh, and you'd be surprised. There's a lot more lock stylers because in England and Europe, it, it's the way to fish lakes. Hmm. And it's, it's, it's also obviously in competition fishing, it's the only way you're allowed because it doesn't give you the advantage of cornering a spot in a lake by anchoring up on it. And, and like any, any, uh, any time it, it has its pros and cons like, like any method. Right. So, um, hmm. but if I'm not fishing out of that, definitely a pontoon boat uh, outcast, I've got a, an old pack 9,000. They don't make that boat anymore, but that's a beautiful twin hull each side, um, big nine foot pontoon boat very cozy and lots of i'm a bit of a pack rat i got a lot of crap i take with me on the water because i'm afraid if i don't take it i'll uh, you know even if i'm going to anchor i always have the drogue in me because you the day i don't take it is the day the opportunity pops up to use it um or uh, i've got a stealth um blow and go uh boat as well that works really well you know a frameless boat so uh, right. there's so many options nowadays and as you probably know, Mark, boats are all about compromise. They do some things well and other things not so well. So that's why you need so many.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's true. And yeah. and the, the more I, the more time I spend on the water, the more I realize that, you know, like, and, and the more craft you have, the more kind of, the harder that decision is sometimes. It's like, well, I can take this boat and we can cover the big water, but I really want to fish the shoals. and.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or you got to launch that big boat in and the launch is shallow and muddy. Oh. And you watch that person in the pontoon boat that barely draws any water. They're gone and you're like knees yeah. sloshing around. Kid um, lake <laughs> yeah. 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 Sorry. Or you get but com- conversely you go down to Henry's Lake uh in, in Idaho you don't want to be that lake is in the confluence of three valleys and she can turn ugly really quick mm. and you need to be able to get out of dodge fast when that happens cuz it's it's a very shallow lake and when that water gets moving it doesn't have much place to go so it starts rolling up in big swells and whitecaps and it's uh you know unfortunately people die on that lake every year because of that they underestimate um you know yeah. the water they're on you know which is part of we talked about going to a new lake is you know research you know the first part whenever i go to a new lake is you can do a lot of research at home on the coffee you know at the mm. kitchen table with a coffee or a pop or beer or whatever you want to drink and and you know start if you know of any friends that have been there before you know start picking their brain if there's any. F- Fly shops in the area, they're always willing, helpful to, to help. If you do go down that way or in there, drop by and, you know, say you were talking to them and support them a little bit. Um, How much do you look
0: at stocking reports?
1: I do. Uh, you know, your home province, British Columbia, has got one of the best stocking report systems where you can tailor make um You know, uh, an opportunity if you want, if you want to catch brook trout and you want to catch, well, they're all triploids now, but if you want to catch brook trout or a certain type of rainbow, a panask, you can look them up. If you want to go on a trophy hunt, catch big fish, you're looking for low stocking numbers, Uh, triploids, you know, sterile fish that uh, are going to grow big, Um, you can... You know, you can, and I'm a big advocate of looking at stocking, first for no other reason to find out if the lake you're going to go in has actually ever got been stocked.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It has fish in it. Um, other resources you can use besides stocking reports is Google Maps and Google Earth. Um, you know, when you're looking for structure, um, you can look them right in. And now with your smartphones, you can be sitting on the lake and look, yeah. right? If you've got cell service and it saves you a you know, if you're on a bigger lake, do I want to go down that far end and have a look? Well, you pull up Google Maps or Google Earth and kind of scroll over and look down and see what's going on. And, you know, sometimes um, it'll show you shoals and, you know, weed beds and things like that. you yeah. got to watch sometimes. So, in my luck, I was checking a lake and they shot Google went over the lake in the middle of winter. So, it was white, which wasn't much help. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've,
0: seen. I've seen that
1: um yeah but and and google maps as well you can you can play with the different um settings and usually when you bring up google maps it's in like a 2d map view but you can change it to terrain view and other views like that and uh, the beauty of terrain view is it gives you kind of a 3d look um graphic of the area and as fly fishers i mentioned we're looking for that shallow water so we don't want to you know we might want to most times avoid steep-sided um slopes into a lake because that that uh, angle is going to follow in. That's going to be deep water, not much shoal area there potentially. Um, whereas the other end of the lake is shallow. The you know the the um, contour lines are spread apart. That's going to carry on the lake. That's going to be your shallow area. That's going to probably most likely place to find weeds and feeding trout.
0: If you had to think, and this is kind of a weird question, but what's the biggest mistake you think fly fishers make when they hit? A body of water for the first time, like what would be some kind of low-hanging fruit?
1: Go too fast. Like they, we're all there. We oh, we're on the water. We're going, and just gear is thrown into the lake, and they motor a, a thousand miles an hour off, and they're well, not quite a thousand, but you know they're going places, and they they're missing things. So you you need to spend ten or fifteen minutes because after you've done your homework, literally work at home, then the next place to start doing some figuring out is right on the shore. So start looking, you know, take a walk up and down the, the shoreline. Uh, look, you know, what thing, you know, there's certain insects, dragonflies, damselflies that crawl out of the water to emerge. So you're looking on the we- any emergent vegetation or, or shoreline bushes and trees, any signs of a hatch. You're gonna look along the shoreline, turn over rocks and logs, see what's living under them and swimming around. If there's been some recent wind, you, you can have foam lines that are built up. They're white, they offer great contrast and they trap things in them. Uh, um, so you, you're gonna do all that, take an aquarium net with you, um, you know, scoop around and, and try and see what, what potentially could be on there. Look on the water, what shucks have been blown in, what's swimming, what's on the water, what's swimming around in the water, those kind of things. And then when you head out from shore, you know, I always cruise out very, very slowly so I can see things, right? Whether I can see things swimming in the water, shucks on the surface, those kind of things. So I would say just, just you're so excited to go fishing, but just temper. If you invest 10 or 15 minutes and do some detective work on the shores, you know, look at spider webs, look on long docks, um, talk to other anglers, all that stuff. You're just at that point, you're still a sponge gathering as much information as you can.
0: When you're launching that SP14 and you're just heading out, are you standing up so you can see in the water a lot of the time?
1: Yeah, sometimes. Probably those boat safety-conscious people, you shouldn't be standing in a boat. But you know that boat, you could, you could throw a party in that thing, and it wouldn't. I always joke the only oh, way yeah. you're falling out of that boat is you're pushed. Um, but <laughs> you know, so I've got my, my suspect my inflatable uh, uh, life vest on and stuff. But yeah, sometimes I'm. I'm standing up to, um, you know, look around. I'm looking for, as I mentioned, moving fish, shucks on the surface, things swimming beneath the surface, bird activity, right? Do you have birds working low to the water? You know, when I was, I mentioned early on about fishing off Harkers Island. You know, those false albies are are chasing bait and bawling up sardines and and anchovies, and uh, you know, quite a vicious sight to see, but. We're looking, uh, and the guide is looking for birds, a certain type of bird and a certain activity, bird bird play, um, whether they're low to the water and working, because the birds follow those schools of bait around, too, and they go at them. And, of course, you can be rest assured that if there's birds around, there's predators underneath. So that could be the same thing if you're on a lake that has a bait fish population. But a lot of times, you know, like a cronomet, they, they don't hatch universally across the lake or all over they they might be only in one bay or on one shoal and a concentration of swallows or nighthawks or other bird like that that feed turns that feed on uh, insects that's going to be a great clue to get over there
0: that's a great tip are you are you using binoculars at all in the boat or is that kind of getting yeah
1: i have a set i I have a set of binoculars um because they're they're always a great tool to have to save you a long drive to nothing right so if you see activity it's always good to you know, if it's not, if, if it looks like it's going to take you a couple minutes, five minutes to get, or the other end of the lake to get there, um, then it's, I think it's wise to have a look first and make sure you're not being lured away, you know, some, Mother Nature's trying to play a bit of a practical joke on you, see if we can get these guys to move, right? Because they're all, I always joke, there's always a belief that it's always the far end of the lake's the best spot, right? Oh, yeah. And I've had some very memorable fishing right in off the boat dock, yeah. right, where everybody just blasts through. They're on their way to somewhere, and it's like, where, where'd you fish all day? I don't know, 25. I remember one year at Roche Lake, probably familiar with that. Oh, yeah. You know, putting the motor on the boat and all that stuff. This was a, probably 15, 20 years ago now, and we rowed out every day and fished the ba- the drop-off right off the west campsite by the point. That's where we sat for the whole week and fished car because they were hatching there the entire week. I never fired the motor up once.
0: You never went out to the flats?
1: Nope didn't have to yeah (laughs) they were there all day long
0: carl's flats
1: yeah way down the electric motors island area yeah 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 we were at the at the west side uh provincial forestry site then provincial site now and yeah we just sat in that uh basically straight off the where you launch um just turn left and go up there and sit in about 12 feet of water and we had a great week
0: (laughs) Mm. Yeah. yeah, sometimes it's right in front of your face. And I, yep. I, I'm sure we've all experienced that. You know, it's like, I think that's too, when you're sitting on the shore, you're like, oh, it must be good over there. But it's like, the thing that you said something about, like, you might just have like a sharp drop off. And it's like, yep. there's a lot of dead water, right? There's a lot of, like, you know, if you had to look at a, at, a, at a lake, an average size lake, there's probably like some math that says there's a percentage of the water you don't even want to waste your time.
1: Well, isn't that analogy that, you know, river and stream fish, you use it a lot, you know, 90% of the fish from 10% of the water, yeah. and it's probably similar in lakes, right? There's, you know, for the most part as fly fishers, we don't spend much time over that deep, deep water. It's just, uh, to me, the only thing that's going to hold a fish in that deep water, you know, is obviously if it's in the summer months, that's where the oxygen is, but it's, it's food, you know and you do you we definitely get some deep water coronam in emergences but um, that's the only thing that's going to concentrate them otherwise there's nothing to really hold them they kind of mm. roam and you know just cruise around randomly um, the one thing about a shoal is it will focus them right and it's just it's shallow they can't they got less place to hide so but another important thing to has if you can get a bathymetric or underwater contour map that's another great tool you can have um, that you can do research at home and the way those work is the you know they the the areas of similar depth are all joined by the same line so when you get the lines on that bathymetric map very close together like almost touching that's a steep change in depth whereas if they're spread out you know quite a distance between them that's more shallow and shoal-like and helps you identify points Mm drop-offs underwater points sunken islands you know it's kind of a let's say a 20,000 foot view of the lake. And then of course, when you get on the water with your electronics, um, then you can find those subtle differences. Cause sometimes you can have a shoal with a little, there's a two foot trough running through it and the fish will relate to that. They'll use it like a little game trail or a highway. So, you know, the sounder I've got, um, is, uh, got that auto chart feature and the hummingbirds that every time I get on the water, I flip it on and it makes your own bathymetric maps for you.
0: That's actually a really good tip. So if you guys are listening to this, um, check out Phil's done some really in-depth conversations, um, regarding fish finders because that's a fish fish like i'm a i'm a bit of a you know i don't know a lot about fish finders I, I i know a little bit i know how to use it i use it all the time but i think a lot of us just scratch the surface with it and i watched some of your youtube videos and some of your live chats you've done on on instagram you went yeah. real deep one day with one of the guys from hummingbird and yep. i'm like i had, yeah, I had no clue uh, i
1: had andrew Humphreys the uh western canadian I know he's the BC rep for sure, Uh, and he knows, you know, like you, I try to learn as much as I can. I do a lot of my own research on YouTube. Like, if you check out some of the, uh, the, you know, the bass anglers and stuff like that, that their mortgage depends on this, they are whizzes with their electronics. And, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes people say, well, I just want it for depth and water temperature. My argument is buy the most expensive, complex sounder you can and learn how to use it because – the analogy is a bit like a car. Um, once you have a feature and exposed to it, you've never used before, and have success with it, you can't live without it. Like a heated steering wheel. Who would go back to roll-up windows, right? Um, a smartphone. You know, Wi-Fi. Who would, go back, would you go back to an old flip phone? Ugh. No. You know, no. or a rotary dial? No way. Um, so, uh, you that's know, that's what I'm so calling you
0: on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I have a rotary dial, and, uh, old rotary dial phone in my garage. I showed my two sons. I wondered how I survived childhood. That was a horrible experience. How do you <laughs> dial this thing? Um, but uh, you know, electronics are so. You've got mapping. Um, you know, when you catch a fish or you find a pattern, you can drop a waypoint. Those waypoints allow you to go back and review. Obviously, go back and find that area again. But sometimes you see, boy, all my waypoints are around drop offs today, or they're around p- points. You know, it gives you clues as to where they were that day. And, you, you know, you cross-reference with the other information you've gathered. Uh, it tells you bottom type, water temperature. Um, you know, you've got side scan. You can look out to the sides and, and, and see structure. And once you learn what a fish looks like on side scan, you can see all those too. And now they've got these new live units. It's almost a bit like a game um, where the, you get your screen is now displayed with how far the fish out is, how far it is down. And the oh the fish the fish appear on there like that's a fish. It's not a mark. It's the silhouette of a fish. And you can I watch some of these ice fishing guys and and conventional anglers and you watch the lure descend down and watch the fish come up and eat it. So some wow. might argue that's maybe the death of fishing as we know it. But there's still a huh. um, an element of you still got to be able to you know. But just because you met the fish, you still got to be able to close the deal.
0: Still somehow yeah. with all this. They still stand a pretty good chance, yeah. Which is pretty yeah, they, amazing,
1: yeah. For a for an a, 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 an impulse-driven critter, they kick our butts far too often. Even when you're having a great day, it's it's probably be humbling to realize how many fish came up to your fly and said nope, yeah.
0: <laughs> right? No doubt. So, yeah. uh, how's the reception been to the book? Because last since we last chatted, um, the Orvis guide to Stillwater trout fishing as uh it's been out for a few months now and uh how's that been going for you
1: it's been going good i have been selling you know we brian and i sell them on our online Stillwater fly fishing store stillwaterflyfishingstore.com so we sell it there and that's been it's it's hard keeping up with it the initial i remember i started taking pre-orders it was my most expensive day at the post office ever over two thousand dollars worth of shipping uh, to get those books out um when i'm at the fly fishing shows in the states there's there's a bookstore set up right within the show that um and there's an authors table where speakers we, we go to gather and rest but um you know we people come in and talk to us and buy our books and when i was at the fly fishing symposium by the first day my book was sold out so uh, and lots awesome. of people have come up, yeah, they've come up and give me good response on it. So uh, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful people find it, it helpful and and, and uh, information there for both, you know, new anglers and, and those that have fished for a while. Because you never, that's my motto. You, I get teased about it, but you never stop learning and you never know where your next source of information is coming from. Yeah,
0: and that learning curve is steep and it can be. And, and you have been helping a lot of people um, get through that learning curve. Curve in a in a hurry and and we really appreciate it. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Before we let you go, I, I just want you to throw out all your your handles out there. Where do we find you on Instagram? You probably got a list like as long as your arm. Your fly fishing <laughs> store, uh, Phil. Yeah. Where's the best place to find you?
1: Well, I often joke the best place sometimes is just to Google my name, Phil Roly and everything pops up. But. Um, mm-hmm. There's my personal website, flycraftangling.com. Um, we got, i got fly patterns on there, entomology, some old articles. You can become a member. Yes, for those of you web aficionados, it's in desperate need of a facelift, and I'm working on that this year, one of the goals for 2022. Uh, we have the Stillwater Store mm-hmm. uh, that Brian and I set up. It's very niche-specific to Stillwater. It's all the quirky little stuff we use, and that's stillwaterflyfishingstore.com. So books, indicators, flies, accessories are all there. Um then there's uh gone blank, Instagram. Um just look me up on it's Phil Roly Fly Fishing. Mm-hmm. Same with my Facebook page, Phil Roly Fly Fishing. Um it's Flycraft Phil uh old handle I used to use for YouTube. Um so I've got please encourage people to go over and have a look. Lots of fly tying videos there, and now I'm putting more and more vlogs and instructional segments on there. As well, I'm trying to put a new video up every week. Um, the pandemic was hard to get out and film and, and do be with others to film, but uh, managed to build up a cache of of uh, product this over the past season that uh, my wife's working diligently to edit for me yes. uh, and get those out. So that's that's probably the best places: YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, websites, and even that's
0: it. even better, the best place. And my favorite place to run into you is at a fly show because Phil is always the friendliest guy in the room. We'll always take time to talk to you. And uh, thanks again for doing this. And uh, and hopefully you'll get out on that circuit. It sounds like you got a busy winter coming up.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. So let's stay in touch. Uh, you know, the beauty of heading south um, when we're cold is if I play my cards right in Boise, I should have my first trout to the fly in January. So,
0: <laughs> Well, you're ahead of the curve. Right on. Thanks so much. You've been listening to a chat tonight with Phil Rowley. Fly fishing is definitely his passion. Teacher, guide, author, fly tire, video producer, YouTuber, online, and learning brand ambassador.
2: The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.